Welcome to Stories of Calvary. My name is Mark Van Jordan, and I have the privilege of being a pastor at Calvary Christian Reformed Church here in Wyoming, Michigan. I think it's primarily because of the influence of John Quist here at church that we started talking, as a church, directly about the power of story to shape our lives. And of course, this works in two different ways that are related. We're often inspired by other people's stories, but perhaps even more importantly, that inspiration can then lead us to want to live a better version of our own story. In this fifth installment of the series, I interviewed Sherry Bowes. I've known that she was a social worker at St. Mary's Hospital here in Grand Rapids for quite some time, but like most of us, of course, I really only had a general idea of what is involved with that work. I was curious, but I didn't really know the details of it. During this pandemic, the hospital turned the floor she works on into a COVID ward, which means it had patients that have COVID. And again, most of us have a general idea what's happening on these wards, but since we are not there and not allowed to visit ever because of the pandemic, the details are always a bit fuzzy. Because of these two things, I wanted to sit down with Sherry and find out more about her role both as a social worker and what it's currently like to work on a COVID ward. And I'm so glad I did because the conversation was really helpful for me, inspirational to be honest, and I pray it's helpful for you. Uh, we dealt with two topics, so the conversation is a bit longer than normal, but I think it's well worth the time. And I'm extremely grateful to be able to share this conversation with you in this way via podcast. So without further ado, here is our conversation. My name is Sherry Baus, and I am a medical social worker at St. Mary's Hospital. I have been there for just over five years because I pretty much got hired in as soon as we moved back here and I specifically wanted to work at that hospital so mm. that was where I applied at and I'm working now on a neuro floor. Before that we lived in Sacramento and I worked at a Catholic hospital out in California for a number of years. I loved working in a hospital that really had a faith presence okay. and especially in Sacramento the, there were nuns oh, yeah. all over. It was yeah. called Mercy Health, and uh, we had the, you know the nuns kind of ran the place. And there was morning prayers, and you know they would often talk about our job being our mission field. Oh, wow. And so when I was thinking about where to work here, I'm like, I want to apply at St. Mary's mm -hmm. because I want, I really wanted that, mm -hmm. and to work with people who also felt you know, the same way about, you know, the place that they work, that it is their mission yeah. field and that has a heart for like the Heartside community, mm -hmm. um, underinsured and, and so yeah. forth. So you're a social worker there. So how'd you get into social work? How'd that happen? Well, you know, sometimes I look back at that and I'm a little in awe about that too, but I remember taking some of those little evaluations as a high school student, you know, where they try to tell you where you might, you know, what kind of a job you might be good at. And social work did come up on that at one point, and I was like, what, what is that? <laughs> it's social? It's work? <laughs> Maybe I would like that, but it's not that I knew social workers or really had an idea, but um, I, I think it was a job that I had in high school. I worked at a migrant daycare with the Holland Deacons Conference, and um, we'd go around on the buses and we'd pick up children from these different migrant camps, and while the parents were at work, we would take care of them and provide them meals and kind of like a preschool environment, and then sometimes we'd go back to the camps at night and bring a dinner or like kind of have a gospel presentation, whatever, but it just struck me, because I did this job for a number of different summers, and okay. I loved it. And I just always felt like, how come these people can't get ahead? Like they are the hardest workers. I mean, they mm -hmm. are out in the fields by 6 a.m., mm -hmm. sometimes working till well after dinner. 
and and you know that they're just not going to get ahead like they yeah. are and it, and it just struck me about that and how I think I'd kind of grown up thinking well if you work hard you're gonna do fine sure. and yeah it was just kind of getting this realization that not always you know there is this these populations of people that um, that struggle and yeah. um, and so I think that was just kind of brewing in me this sense of inequality mm. or just unjustness mm-hmm. so I was thinking about what to major in and uh, you know I don't know exactly how it happens but I choose social work and I, and my idea was to get a minor in Spanish okay. to kind of somehow combine those two. Then going on to grad school, my specialty was school social work. Okay. So I kind of pictured myself maybe in a school with Spanish-speaking kids. I mean, that was kind of my idea, but yeah. then, you know, got kind of different plans. Things kind of changed. But yeah, I guess I guess it was that job. And then just my personality of, um, I'm just like a peacemaker type person. Uh-huh. I'm kind of a root for the underdog kind yeah. of a person. Yeah, yeah. My, my mom would often say that, she put me between any sisters that were fighting. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> just because, I don't know, somehow I role. tried. That was my role. It was just a kind of... A middle child? <laughs> a middle child. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's funny how that works. <laughs> yeah. I really didn't know. It's not like I knew social workers or anything like yeah. that. And, and then you ended up in a hospital eventually. Yeah. So um, after I graduated from Michigan State with my master's, I worked four years at early on, which mm-hmm. was part of the Kent Intermediate School District. And okay. we did evaluations for kids with developmental delays. Mm-hmm. So in the birth to three population. You know, so it's kind of with the school district, but with the really little ones. Yeah. And we did home visits and provided developmental play groups and, you know, and, and it was, and I led a, a, some parent groups that had kids with disabilities and things like that. Mm-hmm. So um, and then I met Doug, and he yeah. had this idea to move to California. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so then I ended up working, um, well, it was a program called Birth and Beyond. And I did that until Ellie was one years old. Okay. And I was, on her birthday was actually my last day. So I'm like, oh, I don't wow. want to be working. At that point, it was four days a week. I wanted yeah. to cut way back. For her first year, I said to myself, if the rest of her life goes as fast as this first year did, <laughs> I want to I wanna cut back some. So that was when I started working in the hospitals because I could mm-hmm. do just one or two days a week. And because all my experience had been with really little kids and mm-hmm. young moms, I started out mostly in California just working in special care nurseries and with the postpartum. Okay. population so that was most of my time out in California yeah. and then it wasn't until I moved here that I started you know I had really good training yeah um, they do such a good job with that at St. Mary's where you know then I could work in the ED okay. special care any floor because yeah. we had to really know it all so what floor exactly do you work on now? so um, so and what do they do I guess it's, it's, it's a neurology floor so you know anybody's got had a stroke Okay. It's going to come to our floor. Someone with seizures. We actually have an epilepsy monitoring unit on okay. our floor. And then just a lot of altered mental status. So it, whether it's from an infection or uh-huh. some other reason, people are just coming in confused. You know, yeah. And we're, we evaluate that. And then we also have a lot of surgical patients, too, who okay. have back surgeries. I mean, the neuro is all the whole spine and brain all working together. And uh-huh. so um, we'll have surgical patients that... Um, that come through too and then just because there often be other reasons that people come to floor I often will have psych patients from the ED who are waiting for Mm -hmm. like a psychiatric bed for inpatient to open up and so I work on those discharge plans so during COVID your ward became uh, kind of a COVID ward then backed off and now it's kind of I don't know what the status is now but maybe you can just describe yeah what that's like yeah 
So um, when COVID hit last spring, I didn't really realize this at first, but just because of our proximity to the ICU unit, which okay. is just downstairs, and the emergency department at St. Mary's is also in the Houndstein building. So the emergency department is on the ground level. Then you have floor one just has offices and so forth. And then the second floor is the ICU. Mm -hmm. Third floor would be the neuro floor. So they really wanted to keep all the COVID patients all in that one building oh, because yeah. they'd be coming through the ED. They might be needing a vent, so they yeah. would go to the ICU. And then we also have a lot of um, negative pressure rooms on our floor too oh, to kind okay. of contain the virus and so sure. forth. So that's kind of the area that we've so far been able to keep COVID patients just there. I just wrote my job share partner, um, just texted her on my way okay. over here. I'm like, cause there was talk that we would need to go now to a, another area within yeah. the hospital. Cause we're pretty much maxed out. Um, our numbers are definitely increasing. Yeah, what are those numbers? Cause I don't, I mean, what are the numbers like percentages and all that stuff? Yeah. Do you know a little bit about that? Yeah. Like or well, um, so I have 34 beds on the floor okay. I work at. And so we had, we're full. So that'd be 34 right with there COVID patients. with COVID patients really? right now. And then the ICU, they're trying to keep a variety because the ICU needs to stay open for other needs, right? Yeah. So I think they're trying to keep it around 16 mm -hmm. maybe. But then with, just with our, we were over 40 this week, which was, was the mm -hmm. highest that St. Mary's ever got. We, we did go over what we were in the highest point of the spring. And on top of that, just our numbers as a whole, because we have continued to do our elective surgeries and everything, mm -hmm we are at like max capacity. Okay. Wow. So I shouldn't say max, we could but probably the get full, so to speak. the hospital is, is yeah. full, so to speak, which is very different than in the spring because yeah. we didn't do any of those elective. Everything elect shut down. And yeah. And our, our, even though we would have sometimes 35, 40 patients, the hospital census as a whole was very yeah. low. It was almost eerily low. Yeah. It's different now. So I think, yeah. yeah, now we're trying to be able to just kind of yeah, so that we don't yep. have to do layoffs or don't have to delay yep. other people's treatments. Yeah. So. Just on a personal level, a lot of the people that I know are not as sick lately. Yes. But there's still obviously people that are very sick that need to be in the mm -hmm. hospital. Like it mm -hmm. hasn't gone away even yeah. though we all would have liked it to by now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think the way that COVID's being treated is is just a lot better. I mean, okay. the the lengths of stay seem to be shorter for okay. people. They're trying to really avoid putting anybody on a vent or mm -hmm. anything like that. So mm -hmm. really just working with ex oh, really? extra oxygen or, oh. um, you know, there are new medications and things. So it does seem that a lot of people are discharging um, and doing quite it. well okay. and, and staying shorter periods of time. So what was your role there initially, like when it first hit, interacting with COVID patients? And what's your role now? Like It was just a very uh, just a real place to go i think mm -hmm. last spring when this was all just you know we were all just learning about it and i think the hospital we were all everybody was stressed yeah. you know just how are we going to manage this influx and you know you're seeing tents set up in different oh, yeah. places and um, just seeing pictures on the news of these different, you know, ICUs and emergency departments. And so everyone's just kind of on, you know, there was regularly um, town hall meetings and oh, yeah. surge plan discussions and all of that. And, and it's also surreal in that we would, you know, there'd be people outside with uh, signs like, oh, thank yeah. you, healthcare heroes and oh, all yeah. of this stuff. Oh, and we'd cool. be getting food. So in that part, the community really was great, uh -huh. you know, and very supportive. But on the other hand, you're just like, I'm just doing my job. Job. just like you know every, yeah, exactly. so many other people are just doing their jobs amidst this whole thing but yeah 
So initially, though, we didn't have, you know, we just like said, no, you can't have anybody here. Yeah. Nobody can have anybody here. And over time, we found ways to kind of, you uh-huh. know, be communicating with families. And we got like an iPad service set yeah. up for every patient who had COVID so that they could be talking with their loved ones if they didn't have their own phone and stuff. But I remember just initially meeting a woman down in the front reception area. And we just kind of set it up that she would bring in an iPad for her husband because okay. he had dementia. And she was so concerned about him yeah. and um, how he'd be handling this without her there. So I'm like, I'll meet you down here. We'll get this iPad. So we, we kind of set it up in his room that she could be taking a nap in her couch (laughs) and he would just be sleeping they didn't even need to be communicating but she just wanted to be there and she wanted to be there if a doctor came in so that you know she could hear what all the reports were and stuff like that so initially my role was just trying to kind of make sure that family was knowing what was going on Mm -hmm. that they were getting their reports and you know that they were getting the updates from the doctors that they needed and then to initially we had just such a surge of homeless people oh, that okay. tested positive for oh, COVID. Wow. So a part of my job was just getting them to some different isolation centers that we had set up in mm-hmm. Grand Rapids. Guiding Light was one initially, mm-hmm. and then um, the Fulton, I think it was a Fulton Care Center, was okay. uh, later on. They Well, for a while there was both of them open, but it was just a safe place for the homeless population to go and finish their quarantines. Um, so it was just kind of working with this team that was just set up in the community to get people in and out and where they needed to go. And, mm. and with that initial wave in the spring, we still had two psychiatric hospitals that were willing to kind of open a COVID wing. So Pine Rest was one, and then I think it was Stonecrest over near Detroit. But now we have none. Oh, wow. So if, if, if somebody needs inpatient psychiatric care, mm-hmm. there isn't any oh, wow. in the state of Michigan right now that is open for COVID patients. So that's, that's just rough. kind of a different yeah. situation now. But yeah, we were just, you know, initially it's just, what do we do and when can people go back and mm-hmm. when is it safe for them to go back? Because the CDC wasn't very clear on guidelines yet. Yeah. So <laughs> it was just kind of chaos yeah. at first. Um, you're probably one of the people that actually would go in and talk to people when they were alone in those rooms. Yeah, well, um, so as a, um, I'm not considered direct care staff in that I'm not, I'm not giving meds or anything like that. So like myself, RN case manager, who is the other person who I'm really teamed up with, we would do all of our conversations via the phones outside of the patient's oh, rooms. Oh, really? So we were really trying to be careful with the PPE yeah. to save that for the doctors oh, and the nurses. Right. Yeah. So it was very different not to be able to talk right mm-hmm. with them. And I really missed that for those weeks yeah. of just only being able to yeah. be a voice on this phone call. Yeah. One thing that is nice about the way our unit is set up is that they all the patients have like a glass window, you know, right outside their room. So okay. I would make a point of just not calling from my desk yeah. phone, but just making sure I'm calling from the phone right outside their room. And I'd always say, I would love to be in there with you. Yeah. Um, but this is the way we're doing it for now. But I'm right here and I'd yeah. wave at them. Uh-huh. Um, just one wow. funny story was this lady who... Uh, I kept on saying, I'm at your window. And she kept looking outside. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I think she was a little hard of hearing. 
She's like, where are you, honey? And I'm like, this window, your other window. Turn and look this way. And she oh, just funny. couldn't figure it out. And she kept thinking, and we're on the third floor, so I don't oh, know yeah. how she thought it was outside her window. But um, so that was just, yeah, oh, stuff yeah. like that. Oh, but, yeah, but yeah, so it was just, you know, a different way of communicating, yeah. but just, yeah. and that's how it is still. You know, we just switched back to just being a full COVID floor, but I would go see my other patients with goggles, yeah. with the mask, stay six feet apart, but then the COVID patients, it would have to be yeah. via the phones. Is there any times, especially early on or maybe lately, that you just felt in danger? You know, we're so careful at the hospital that I've often thought if I would contract this virus, it's going to be somewhere in the community or one yeah. of my kids is going to pick it up and I'm going to get it from them at home or something. I really don't feel too endangered there. Yeah. There was one time in particular, though, that we did have a, a psychiatric patient who was delusional and uh, we could not keep him in his room. So that is kind of, you know, with COVID, these patients yeah. have, whereas, you know, we don't usually let them just run, you know, people yeah. walk all over the hall, but, you know, but with you the therapist, out. they yeah. can get out. And well, he kept on trying to get out and, um, and having these delusion, very religious preoccupations. Mm. And uh, he would come out and just yell. Oh, wow. And he was, you know, obviously COVID positive, and but asymptomatic, but just would yell. And oh, um, like we would, yeah. yeah. So whenever that happens, we get these, um, what do they call it? The safety response team comes. Oh, really? And the social worker on the floor is always part of that safety response team oh, along really? with security and our psych rounder. So I came home that day and I told Doug and the girls, I'm uh -huh. like, if I get COVID, <laughs> this will be the day because yeah. I was, you know, within... You know, maybe not, maybe it was a little further than six feet. I didn't have to actually lay hands on him, or, yeah. you know, but, um, you know, he was for sure yelling at yeah. me without a mask with, oh, you know, wow. so that was probably the day that I felt like, oh boy. <laughs> so what do you wear when you're there? Like a mask and a face shield or? Yep. Yep. So I just wear a mask like this just for sitting at my desk. Mm -hmm. um, and then just this week I was fitted for the N95 again, because okay. I guess there's been just a couple times where social workers have gone in yeah. you know and just felt like they really needed to and yeah. so I hadn't been in that situation yet but so now I do have a you know one of those fitted ones okay. that I can use and then we have we've tried all different things that's where yeah, it's that. just like you know we've gone from these full-on shields that yeah. completely fog up that I can't see anybody they need like windshield wipers to um you know things that look like I'm ready to go scuba diving. Oh. To, <laughs> so, but yeah. So we. So if I'm going to see a patient that doesn't have COVID, yes, I'll be wearing a mask and uh, goggles. Okay. For about six to seven weeks, um, kind of late spring, early summer, our whole floor had to wear the scrubs. Oh. And so that was kind of new for me because yeah. usually I just wear oh, business casual or whatever mm -hmm. and. You know, we we had to change when we got into work and keep our hair pulled back, and oh, yeah. so that was kind of a different experience yeah. for me. Kind of dressing the same as the nurses, yeah. and the the whole floor looked the exact same. You oh, know, wow. with uh, with these same blue scrubs, and yeah. you know that are one size fit. Yeah. One size doesn't fit anyone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that was, yeah, oh, wow. kind of new for me. But yeah, now we're back to only the direct care kind of. Right. They, they're all, you know, they've got it all on when yeah. you go in to yeah. see these patients. So. so with the second wave now, what's your role now? Like, how is it different? Well, I still get the same types of referrals, especially because everybody who comes to the hospital gets tested. So, you know, they might be coming in for psychiatric issues and didn't know that they're going to test positive yeah. or they're 
having an alcohol withdrawal seizure and then find out that they test. So our floor is kind of more back to some of the same types of stuff. I do a lot of, um, you know, my main job is suicide assessments, Mm -hmm. drug and alcohol, just conversations. I meet with a lot of people for durable power of attorney type stuff to see who their decision makers would be. I mean, these are just some of the typical kinds of things that I interact with patients about. Um, As far as just having COVID, it just is more complicated because there's more barriers for yeah. getting people to what they need and where you know like just because like I said before there are no psychiatric oh, beds yeah. so this week I had two patients the psychiatrist sees and starts with the medication we make sure all the safety procedures are in place around like suicide risk and stuff but we're actually like kind of starting their psychiatric treatment and hoping they can get to a point where you know they no longer need that mm-hmm. but there isn't there's not any there isn't there. a place for them to go. So they either wait their quarantine out and then uh-huh. still go if it's needed or yeah. wait it out. So it's stuff like that. Just getting a patient home from the hospital is mm. way more tricky mm-hmm. when they've got COVID because we can't send them home by cabs or Lyft. So we're either doing an ambicab, which is expensive yeah. for patients, and some of them don't have the resources to do that because they don't want to have a friend or family oh, yeah. pick them up if they haven't been yeah. exposed to it. So yeah. just little things like that. And then like if somebody comes from a assisted living facility, some of them have, you know, pretty good strategies in place to mm-hmm. be able to let somebody quarantine once mm-hmm. they get back. And others will just say, nope, wow. we will not take this person back, even though they don't really meet hospital criteria to still be in the hospital. But these different facilities don't feel comfortable oh. or whatever. So it's always kind of working with that because my, I guess, kind of main role is just to get people safely out of the hospital. Okay. Um, so with COVID, yeah. that definitely has a very complicated barrier with that. So I think one last question I'd like to ask is what's sort of the biggest prayer request or a couple of prayer requests? Mm. Like how can we pray for people who are staff at a hospital? I think just the um, pray that I have motivation and energy to um, just to be present for people mm-hmm. and you know, sometimes when I do have more on my mind right now with, you know, the elections or different things, mm-hmm. kind of my prayer as I walk in is just every morning, it's just that I can set that stuff aside mm-hmm. so that I have that capacity to just really understand what people are going through and to mm-hmm. be able to meet them where they're at. And I always try to think of it too as a hospitalization is a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. not too many of us spend very much time there. I mean, I've yeah. only ever been at hospitals when I've given birth to my three kids. I've yeah. never even been to an emergency department for yeah. any. And so just being in that setting is stressful and scary yeah. for people. And I just kind of feel like my job is to, because it's kind of like my house in a way. It's mm-hmm. like inviting people to my space where I know where yeah. things are and where I can help try to answer questions and just relieve their anxiety or what questions they have about being there. And um, so I guess just prayers that I can do that and mm-hmm. that I can in my own life and with my own stuff that's going on, just be able to set it aside for the time that I'm there just to be available to whoever God brings to me that day. Thank you so much for listening and a huge thanks in particular go to Sherry for being willing to sit down and talk about her work and her hopes and her prayers. I think it'd be appropriate as we close this podcast to simply have a time of prayer for Sherry. You know, it's so easy just to say, hey, that's great and to let it go. But I want to have a particular time. And if you're willing and have a few more minutes, I'd just love to lead us in prayer. So, Father, I thank you for Sherry's leading to get into the area of social work. And I ask that you would give her everything she needs to be able to be present with the people that she is caring for in that environment. 
Lord, I pray that you would give her your spirit to minister and to speak truth and wisdom, whether it's related to a plan of care or it's related to something that they really need to hear encouragement or truth or wisdom or just direction in their own lives as they suffer through whatever they're suffering with in that particular ward now and on into the future. Lord, I pray that Sherry would see how you're blessing her work, but also how you are working through her to help and affect your kingdom in people's lives. Lord, I pray that you would do the miraculous far more than she could ask or imagine. And I pray that you'd surround her in her work environment and that you wouldn't just do the miraculous through her, but that you would do it all around her as people come in, as people give care, and as people receive care and move on to a place of healing. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.